Welcome back to the Rigged Podcast, where on episode 8, Jamie, Ilias, and Chris have breaking news. Documents released this week confirm that the Massachusetts OIG said that Annie Dukin was the lone bad actor at the Hinton Lab. According to the OIG's own internal documentation, they knew Sonia Farrick had faster testing times at Hinton. They also were aware that the lab's director knew the lab was not following required regulations years before Dukin was arrested. All that and tons more in today's Rigged Episode 8. Enjoy. Breaking news. Chris is breaking news today with uh, some of the FOIA requests that he got from the OIG. Chris, can you tell us, you've talked about it before, but could you just talk about the lawsuit uh, that you filed and what exactly it is that you got on Friday. So it wasn't me, but it was MacDill and the ACLU. They filed okay. intervene in Commonwealth v. Sutton, that's Jim McKenna's case, to try and figure out what exactly the DA's office uh, found and why they thought it was exculpatory. Um, so I sent you, uh, among other things, uh, yesterday, a, a document, uh, it's, it appears to be an inspector general's office internal memo where they're describing reasons why they think um, certain administrators at the lab may have committed a federal offense. So, <laughs> so that's, that's one thing. That's uh, new. And then what I just read to you uh, before we started this um, there was yet another email from consultant Michael Wolf, who was uh, who had previously worked at the uh, FBI and who the OIG retained, uh, again warning them about Farrick. So, um, could you read that exact email? I I love. Yeah, he just so, read it to me. It's amazing. So, like the way I would characterize this is, he's again warning them about Farrick, and he notes that. She was when she was working at Hinton, she was processing an extremely large number of cocaine samples entirely by herself without working with another primary or secondary chemist. He also notes that she was just fired from the Amherst lab and he makes this weird, cynical remark about it. And I think it's implicit in the email that he believes Farrick might have been the chemist whose mishap led to the creation of the two chemist system at Hinton. That's sort of arguable. But anyway, here's the quote. This is the only document that I have seen that defines the Hinton Lab two chemist system. The policy was put in place following the March 30th, 2004 lab meeting to reduce reporting errors. One of the attendees at the meeting was Sonia Farrick, who was fired from the lab. And this is still part of the quote, sleep tight, America. And while operating in the capacity of a single chemist, processed almost 500 cocaine cases and another 170 heroin samples in the 2003 to 2012 timeframe, most of it during 2003 and 2004. There were an additional 1,000 plus pill slash tablet and marijuana samples that she also tested as a sole chemist during that period. So, um, dude, they know exactly, this is, I'm just going to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but they know exactly how many things she tested. Like they, they keep asserting or they keep like 
you know, have it saying, oh, you know, we have to go back. We have to look, blah, 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 blah. They've known for years exactly how many these people were impacted by it. It's crazy. This was within months of her indictment. And it generally (laughs) tends to undercut their whole argument that they're pushing now that once they were initially warned about potential problems with Farrick's testing volume, they didn't find anything else suggesting misconduct. But like, as these emails show, it's not just her testing volume, it's what she was working on. Yeah, uh, and back in 2003, they, they changed the entire lab operating uh, pr- like structure and procedure to accommodate, uh, potentially, we don't know, but to accommodate like her F-ups because she kept, it sounds like screwing up and because she was working by herself, no one was checking her work. So the statistics, when you look at the, the math, when you look at the Hinton Lab database, they do in fact suggest that Farrick was the chemist who was responsible for this particular mishap, but it's sort of unclear to me if the OIG tried to conduct that type of analysis. So when you're looking at this corrective action report. So again, I might have mentioned this in earlier episodes, but there was an incident at the lab where uh, a chemist mistakenly certified something as heroin when it was in fact cocaine, and they picked up on it. And one of the things they did in response was to create a two-chemist system. So one chemist wasn't responsible for both the primary and secondary testing. So there would be a check. Um, if you look at the numbers during the month that this issue was reported, Farrick reports more analyses than anyone else in the history of the lab. And a large chunk of that is this type of analyses. And if you go back the prior few months, she's also processing uh, more samples in this type of manner than anyone else. Um, so there's a reasonable possibility that it was her, um, but no one's been able to you know, pin that down. And I think we talked about in one earlier episode, the fact that they can't even figure out who did this is itself a problem. Right. Like, how do they not know? It's how many people were in that lab? It's under 20, right? Yeah, it's like 12. It's like 12. So you have 12 people in the lab. These fuck-ups are happening. Like, how do they not? I mean, either they have a terrible abhorrent quality system where they can't track anything, any testing that they do because they're just going so fast that paper is just like floating out in the universe or they, um, or they just, I I don't know. They're lying. I I have no idea. What do you, Elias, what do you think? Well, I I have uh, just a few questions because I'm, and I apologize for joining late, but let's, um, I want to review a few things. First of all, that email, uh, Chris, that you read from, uh, who who was who are the recipients of that email? Let me just bring it up just a second. Hold on. And that is a very good question. That's uh, Carnell one. Just one second. I'm sorry. It's okay. And, and the reason I'm asking is because I want to start with that phrase fired from the lab. Um, Hold on, just a moment. Sorry. And also, Ilias, this to me brings up questions as to her transfer to Amherst from right. Hinton, right? Well, I mean, right. So it 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 reveals a 
uh, an event that not only is itself a red flag, um, but contradicts a lot of the representations that have been made, even the, the, let's call them the new representations. So one of the things about when you peddle in falsehoods is when you get caught, you sort of are expected to start telling the truth. And people sometimes buy the, 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 the recanted testimony. Uh, but when the, the recanted testimony is itself uh, a, a mixture of, of, of half-truths and uh, maybe omissions, it's, it's almost like, what are we even doing here? So we were told that the, the, the government owned, didn't know anything about Sonia Farrakh. Then we were told, well, okay, fine. We knew she may, was disheveled, uh, but we didn't know how far back her use went. And now it looks like the whole story, and, and Jamie, I told you this, I always doubted the, oh, I moved from Boston to Amherst because of housing prices. When Annie Dukin lives in the town that is the cheapest town in, in Massachusetts to live in uh, and can drive to, to Boston. So that, that sounded like a, whenever there's a specific detail uh, in a story that doesn't call for specific details, I circle that as that's the lie that we're supposed to swallow because it's going to confuse us. And it confused us in this case, right, Jamie? I'll, I'll admit, I assume. Oh, of course. Sonia moved for her own reasons, but it turns out, according to Mr. Wolf, uh, that she was fired. And I want to, I don't care whether she was fired. I want to know what was his basis for saying that because he had presumably had a basis and who knew that. And our, so if, if this is just internal to OIG. Let, let me just clarify real quick. So, the, so I just sent you a copy of the PDF and before you got on, you can see it. He's flagging the fact that she's fired from the Amherst lab. It's oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, she so, was just fired from Amherst. So, oh, but does, I thought he said in 2004. So let's... Let, that's well, he was, he was jumping. Yeah. Okay. So basically what he's saying, again, this is in June, this is June 11, 2013. And to answer your earlier question, Glenn Kuna is one of the recipients of this email. That's the inspector general. Uh, Audrey Mark is also a recipient, um, as well as a whole bunch of OIG investigators. Uh, but what year? I'm sorry, but it was 2013. 2013. So if you remember correctly, she's arrested in January 2013. She's indicted in April, I, I believe, in uh, March or April. Within a month or so, he sent them an email saying, "Gosh." her numbers are like Dukin's. And then in June, he sends them this other email saying, essentially, geez, she's working on an awful lot of cocaine samples. She just got fired from the Amherst lab. We all know that's for stealing cocaine. So that's the context. So I don't know if you guys just got that PDF and you want to yeah. take a look at it. I, okay, I so will, I, but, but yeah. putting, and then one year later, it's important to put this all into context. One year later, recipient of that email, Glenn Tuna, told the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that Annie Dukin acted alone and that there was no evidence that anyone else at the lab did any kind of tampering. And there's a footnote about Sonia Frock being fired earlier in the report, but the report's conclusion is undeniable that they said Annie Dukin acted alone. And this is clear evidence that they knew a year prior that they, that she didn't. 
Well, they don't even say that Ferrick worked at the Hinton lab. So, uh, you know, they, so what bothers me the most is, you know, again, high testing volume numbers are not a hundred percent proof of misconduct. You need to look at the data, look at what people are working on to try and then generate an inference that there, there may have been misconduct here. We don't have a time machine. There's no expert that can, you know, say like for sure she was doing this. But when you look at what they're working on, one of the red flags that pops out is if they're working on the harder to process, more time consuming samples. And then a separate red flag is if you have someone you know is just fired from her job as a chemist for stealing cocaine, and she's working on an awful lot of cocaine samples by herself, right. that's an issue. Right. So, I mean, right, just so basic, basic common knowledge. I mean, that's not even, anyways, go ahead. Go ahead right. So that's, uh, so I appreciate the, the, the correction. And, and, but my, I think my point um, will still be the same, which is we're told that the history of the world, uh, according to the drug lab started by the OIG, started in 2004. And I always wondered why that was the date that was picked. Why was why, why did the uh, the report start sort of arbitrarily? Right. Um, and 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 now I think we know. Uh, and and I'll, I'll uh, uh, Jamie, you might have a better recollection, or, or Chris, but I don't believe there was a reference in the OIG report to a lab meeting to discuss errors. Was that meeting referenced? No. <laughs> Uh, her high testing number, Dukin's high testing numbers. No, but th- was there a meeting in, in the OIG report? Uh, uh, I don't think so. This particular no. corrective action report, I don't think was referenced, but I can double check. So it, it, it's, it's funny to start a report in the period when there's uh, something like that, but not actually mention it or make that even the starting point, which yeah. is, hey, stuff happened in the past that was not good. Right. But there was a meeting to address those mistakes. Sonia Farak was at that meeting, which is an interesting fact, uh, and had uh, a curiously high, uh, not only high testing volume, but a preference for certain types of substances. But let's let's omit that from the entire report so that we can just say that that all it was all that went wrong was one person. And Sonia Farak is a footnote. That's that's the, the title of the report includes 2002 to 2012, but you're right. Much of the analysis starts in 2004. So it's curious that, you know, Farrick started working there in 2003. Um, and there's Dukin started in when? 2002? I think that's in. He started after Farrick. Um, so Farrick started. I thought she started in. I, I thought she started before. before. That's not the case. Yeah, I think. She, um, so anyway, so uh, so th- there's there's. I guess the question is, OIG got this uh, information from their own uh, a- access to the documents, probably through the um, Navigant database. Right. And this is a database that I tried to get and was stymied, and I don't still understand why that hasn't been released to the public. Uh, my understanding is nothing in that is privileged or rather privileged uh, information can be 
um, uh, um, screened out because OIG was not given access to privileged information. So whatever OIG had access to, I don't understand why that hasn't been made public. Um, is there any basis to say that the attorney general's office knew about, uh, for example, that meeting to discuss errors uh, or Sonia Farak's early high testing volume? Well, that- there is an email from about two or three days uh, after Farrick was arrested where Brad Puffer, who's the director of public relations at the attorney general's office, writes to the criminal bureau, um, including Anne Kazmarek, uh, Werner, et cetera. And he's like, Farrick worked on something like 10,000 cases between 2003 and 2004. I've got a Boston Globe reporter. This isn't a quote. I'm just paraphrasing. But he's saying, I've got a reporter who's asking me about her numbers. I'm sure we would not tell the public about this. Uh, and that's sort of the end of the email. Hmm. <laughs> so, but, so, like literal so, cover-up. Literal cover-up. So, I mean, there are a couple of different things going on. So there are different sets of data. And one of the important things about this new document dump is uh, the defense bar didn't get the underlying DPH chemist monthly report. So um, this is hyper-technical, but we originally got these pivot tables showing just the number of samples that chemists worked on. And that's the um, table that Brad Puffer was referring to when he was alerting the criminal bureau to the fact that Farrick was working on an extremely large number of samples. Then there are these monthly reports that break down the actual types of drugs that the chemists were working on. And that's where Farrick like really stands out. So it's not just her high testing volume. It's that she's working on the harder stuff and that she really likes cocaine. Yeah. It's what she was testing. And, 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 and at the, at the point of, uh, the discovery of Sonia Farrakh, let's call it the discovery, the, uh, from her arrest and the discovery of the contents of her vehicle. I think there was sufficient information there to conclude that she had been using since the dawn of time as, as far as her yep. career was concerned. Yep. So you're not really asking someone to connect a lot of dots here, right? She's using, <laughs> she's probably always been using well, there is, there's definitely evidence to show that she had been using from at least 2011 and that there were uh, probably, you know, service providers, like mental health therapists, stuff like that, who could verify with their own records how far it actually went back. But it clearly went back years and they knew that within a couple months of her arrest. Right. And now you have data to starting in college. She admitted to starting in college. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have data that requires you to now uh, uh, take a closer look at probably not only her Amherst career, but now her Hinton career. Uh, And, and, and that doesn't, that doesn't seem to have happened or, or did it happen? And we're not allowed to see it. So uh, I'm sort of in a dilly of a pickle here because one of the things uh, that I've been discussing with Nactol and um, the ACLU, um, there's a document that um, 
is important, which I'm going to discuss in a second. Um, and uh, I'm trying to figure out uh, why we weren't given more of it. But uh, hold on, let me just pull this up. So after you do this, Chris, I'm going to read directly from the OIG report about their. Sure. Yeah, you go ahead and I'm going to look for this. PDF. Okay. So 2014 OIG report. Uh, here is the executive summary of what they found. The OIG's review found that Dukin was the sole bad actor at the drug lab. The, uh, though many of the chemists worked alongside Dukin for years, the OIG found no evidence that any other chemist at the drug lab committed any malfeasance with respect to testing evidence or knowingly aided Dukin in committing her malfeasance. The OIG found no evidence that Dukin tampered with any drug sample assigned to another chemist, even when she played a role in confirming another chemist's tests. Right. So uh, all sorts of things going on. A, they have evidence that Farrick uh, may have been engaged in misconduct. And even if they couldn't conclude one way or the other, they didn't write anything about it in their report. Right. They said only Dukin was found to tamper with drug. No other chemist was ever found to tamper with drug evidence. That is what they found. And then a year, we had just found out that a year prior to this, they knew very well that another chemist was tampering with evidence. They certainly had abundant evidence that a defense attorney could use to draw that inference and didn't release it. And then on top of that, aside from the Farrick issue, as we discussed previously, um, they were, you know, corresponding internally about whether or not lab administrators uh, had committed federal offenses. So to <laughs> say that Eddie Dukin was the sole bad actor at the lab, I just, I, I don't get it. But um, the, the document that I was going to be talking about, I just pulled it up. Um, so. Uh, and the both of you don't know this because I didn't disclose it previously, but now that it was made public yesterday. So, so um, on September 9th, 2013, there are email exchanges uh, within the OIG talking about the fact that they discovered that after Farrick had transferred to the Amherst lab, she was told that she was processing samples way too quickly and they told her to stop to the extent that she was denied extra samples. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so the, so they wow. quotes. So the subject is relativity review, Farrakh on productivity and relativity is the, the program that they're working with to do data discovery. But one quote is, we're about, this is from Farrick in an email, we're about 10 days behind here, thought I could go a little faster if they let me. Uh, and then another one, uh, doesn't have the quote, but the description is, the above 2004 email is from Farrick to Della Saunders, shortly after Farrick was transferred to Amherst from JP, Jamaica Plain, and Amherst Farrick was denied samples and told not to work, quote, so efficiently uh, so she claims she had to learn how to kill time some days. I wonder if this means Elizabeth O'Brien, Elizabeth you know, and Amherst had some QA policies, procedures in JP that, that JP did not. Um, and then uh, in parentheses, 
For what it's worth considering, Ferrick then finds a very interesting way to break the rules anyway. So oh my I'm gonna God! You right Come now. On. <laughs> and, and sort of that that uh, reminds me of the official story of uh, Annie Dukin, right? That Annie Dukin was observed to be going too fast. Yep. And so they gave her make work projects to quote slow her down without ever looking at why she may have been going too fast. Yeah. But what's in her because she went too fast, all of her samples are fucked up. Like right. now, looking that. back at the OIG report. They keep talking about, so it, Annie Dukin did start in 2004. That's her first, at least her first full year. Um, full year, uh, I think it started in November of 2003, but she may have been training at that point. That's right. that's my memory. So, so um, Ferrick started in March, April, or May of, of 2003, and she officially became like a certified chemist in June, but they have a 30 or 60 day training program, something like that, where they just shadow people. But anyway. And there's a reference to the fact that the, uh, that the lab Hinton was following swear drug, whatever that means or was meant to mean um, as of 2004. But again, to not even get into this very critical time period where there's uh, uh, just to tick off some of the interesting facts, you have uh, Sonia Farrakh and Annie Dukin at the same lab you have a, a series of errors uh, that prompted a meeting to review those errors. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, and you have a uh, situation where Farrakh has high testing volume and then later leaves and uh, Annie Dukin then has a high testing volume. To not even look at, to try to understand that time period seems to me to be a, a major oversight. I mean, like, I'm worried that it's not an oversight. So if you look at the report on page 63 of the OIG's report, there are numbers in there that contradict the numbers that Michael Wolf sent them. So he says, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but essentially the gist is uh, the next highest producing chemist other than Dukin produced X number of samples. But in his earlier email, he says Ferrick produced Y number of samples, and Y is a whole lot bigger than X. Mm. That makes sense. But she's so for, in the OIG report, Farrakh is sort of um, eliminated from the data. Mentioned. Yeah. She's mentioned in a footnote. No, but I mean, uh, I think the specific point is what's that? Sorry, I muted myself. The, the, the specific point is that that's not a true statement that Sonia, that Annie was the highest producer and, and the next highest producer was something lower when you actually had a period of time when Farrakh was the highest producer. That, that, Chris, right? Is that, that's your point? Meaning it's yes. not just that they omit um, a mention of Sonia Farrakh, except in that footnote, but that they actually have uh, somehow massaged the data to eliminate her from the historical record. Yeah, that's right. So I'm looking at the report now. It's page 63 of the OIG's report. And it says, um, uh, it's talking about Dukin's testing volume as a primary chemist. These aren't total numbers, um, meaning the number of analyses, both primary and secondary. 
but uh, it says, uh, let's see, um, doo -doo -doo. Uh, during 2004 and 2005, dot, 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 the next highest producing chemist analyzed an average of 3,640 samples per year. Meanwhile, um, the Wolf emails specifically state uh, that Ferrick, within seven months, reported something like 4,522 analyses. So you, you get what I'm saying? Like in the report, it says, you know, the next highest producing chemist did something like three and a half thousand samples. Meanwhile, they know in about half a year, Ferrick did four and a half thousand samples. And when was, when was uh, Farrakh transferred? Um, she gets to the lab in Amherst in August of um, 2004. Okay, so, so I'm wondering if, if this is a, uh, you know, I, I, I won't admit to doing this as a lawyer, um, but that sentence is qualified as in 2004 and 2005. Right. And so I think what they're saying is that they're, they're probably saying uh, for of all the chemists who were there throughout 2004 and 2005, which conveniently eliminates one. Right. Um, the highest was Dukin and the next highest was uh, so you're getting it. So the question is, why did they pick that time frame instead of talking about this issue? So, like, yes. If, Can I read you the answer to why they picked the time frame? Well, I mean, like, if she's there for six months, then they can average the rest of that year with zero and the following year with zero. And so it's a much smaller number. But that's but yeah, that's totally misleading because you average it with zero, but it's not that. It's you take the average of the time that she was there. Yeah. And uh, not to shift gears entirely, but I want to flag another issue. In the first email, Chris, that you um, uncovered, uh, there's a reference at the bottom to marijuana, that being the fact that OIG discovered that there was not really any um, uh, scientifically robust testing of marijuana, which is an issue that we haven't really yeah. addressed in depth, but we're, we'll get to that. Um, but what's interesting talked about it a number of times, but it's just looking at the test through a microscope rather than doing any kind of scientific. Like, right. There was certainly no, gets. yeah, there was certainly nothing that was reviewable by an, uh, uh by another, uh, uh, chemist in, in something that seemed like science. But what's interesting is on page 63 of the OIG report, the reference to that second highest chemist points out that that person was doing mostly eyeball tests of marijuana. And so you know that that's, first of all, that we know that that's therefore not Sonia Farrakh, right? Because it's somebody who was disproportionately testing marijuana. Uh, but we also now are pointing an even larger arrow at this problem, which is why, why, are, why are some people uh, uh, basically flying through marijuana samples by eyeballing them, and yet they're still being outpaced by people who are actually doing um, uh, relatively complex multi-step uh, 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 testing procedures, supposedly yep. rigorous testing procedures of powders. Yep. And that, that, that sort of dichotomy is never, never even jumps off the page in the OIG report. And that's, to me, should have been, I think, a major consideration. Um, sure. Both what you're doing or not doing with respect to marijuana, but it will only highlight what 
the, the madness that is going on in the cocaine and heroin tests. Right. So uh, that's a great segue because the other thing that we got um, on Friday was the underlying uh, chemist reports where they have Michael, it's assumed to be uh, Mr. Wolf's um, notes, but they're like, uh, there's a comparison of Dukin's numbers and Ferrick's numbers, not just in totals, but specifically with regard to the harder to process powder samples. And Farrick is like highlighted, underlined, asterisks. Her name is in red on the margin. Uh, and he's tabulating the manners in which uh, her numbers stand out as compared to the rest of the chemists. So this might take a minute because I may have to. All right. That's create, fine. I may have to create a new PDF. So uh, just give me a few minutes. I'm sorry. No, why you do that? I'm going to go back to the OIG report and on page seven, we've been asking, okay, why did they, why is the OIG report only for 2002 to 2012? Ilias, you had brought that up earlier. It's a very good question. The OIG tries its best to answer it with a footnote, of course. On page seven, this says the OIG determined that its mission was to conduct a comprehensive investigation of the operation and management of the drug lab from 2002 to 2012. And, and then it's footnote. So it's fo the footnote says the OIG chose a 10-year time frame to gain a thorough understanding of the practices of the drug lab as they evolved over time. The years 2002 through 2012 encompassed, but were not limited to, the years of Dukin's employment at the drug lab. And then after the footnote, it says, to determine whether any chemists, supervisors, or managers at the drug lab committed any malfeasance, malfeasance or malfeasance that may have impacted the reliability of drug tests at the drug lab, and to make findings and recommendations following its review. So, so what's interesting to me is that, number one, it's only hinting that they investigated. That's all they did. And, and they said they did it to, to, quote, get a thorough understanding. So I guess if you made it 11 years, you could not get a thorough understanding. Right. Or you, you, can't, you can't look what's beyond the, uh, uh, you know, what's beyond that imaginary line that you painted. Yes. Right. Uh, literally, there, that is not a reason. That's, there's no reason that they did it from 2000. Well, this is, this is the, the uh, again, I'll, I'll, I won't confess to doing this, but this is the dark arts of, of, um, of lawyers and um, uh, 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 legal writing, uh, which is that you get to artificially um, define and, and compartmentalize things. And under the guise of saying, I'm being so expansive that I'm going to go 10 years Yep. If you know, I mean, that's like saying, um, you know, I've looked at uh, uh, OJ's uh, 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 past in depth for the last 10 years and man, he's squeaky clean. I mean, you, you <laughs> he hasn't been arrested one single time. You can't, you can't do it that way, if you, especially if you have reason to know that you can't do it that way. If you didn't know anything, that might be an okay approach. But again, we know that OIG knew something had happened outside of that 10 year window. Um, and actually now we know that they knew maybe two things. They knew there was some meeting uh, with some uh, concerning er lab-wide errors. 
uh, and they, uh, I guess the inference is that they also had a one chemist system that wasn't um, cutting it. Uh, and, uh, and we also know that there's now somebody else with a, a very suspiciously high testing volume. And so why the 10 years is chosen, um, I think uh, need, needs uh, more uh, investigation than simply uh, uh, picking a round number out of a hat. And, yeah. and, so, and just you guys yeah. that Dukin was the acted was so fast. That's why everyone. That's why everything gravitated to her because she was just lapping everyone. She wasn't even in first. It's go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I just sent you guys the PDF, and this was particularly concerning to me. If you look at the OIG's report, footnote 124, Jamie. It sounds like you may have it. Open. I don't know if I, do. I, can, I can go there. I have so Farrakh's footnote. Just to know, is on page ten and it's footnote fourteen. So one twenty-four. You said if you, page sixty-three. The way it's paginated, not the number of the PDF document, but page sixty-three of the report. I got uh, it. So one twenty-four says certain samples take longer to analyze than others. For instance, marijuana can be analyzed fairly quickly, while <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. Well, while power. Oh, that's why. Yeah, while powders <laughs> such as heroin and cocaine take longer, Dukin's testing generally included a high number of powders. With respect to 595 samples tested by another chemist reference above, 525 were marijuana samples. In contrast, Dukin's March 2004 sample volume of 902 included 384 marijuana samples, but also 420, ironically, powders. Okay, so the PDF I just sent you says that in that same month, that's quoted in that footnote, Farrick analyzed 875 samples and 469 powders, right? So it takes wow. a second understand the math, but she's she was doing, higher on powders. Yeah. So she, has, she was right next to her on total samples. Yeah. So Dukin has a total of 902. Uh, Farrakh has 875. But if you look at the harder to process stuff, Farrakh is leading. Wow. And like wow. The, the listeners can't see this, but uh, I'm just trying to explain the document. Uh, Annie Dukin's numbers are all highlighted and asterisks, and then Farrick's are all highlighted and asterisks, and then there's uh, computations where he's demonstrating that Farrick's numbers are worse. Wow. Unbelievable. And then there's, there's, a, there's a, a bunch of interesting things on this document. So one of them is there's a class E column, mm -hmm. which appears to have, have been... Hard to that's, figure out. that's pills and stuff. So. Right. So it's pills. And which for some reason, there appears to be a lot of zeros. Yeah. Uh, it seems as though they, they were assigning one person in the lab to just do that. Um, so I assume that person gained some familiarity with the way pills looked. Unfortunately, you but have what, to. What's so, that column <laughs> that's written in next to it? Uh, negative and then there's not tested. no i'm sorry to the to the left of class e there's a handwritten column oh uh so he's uh tabulating the number of uh powder samples so those are the hardest oh, he's totaling them 
Yeah, so he's looking at the the high producers, and he notices that uh, Dukin came up with 420. Another chemist was sort of high, came up with 193, and then Farrakh did 469. Right. So what's interesting is there's a third chemist whose whose volume is being noted, um, who's high, but not, but about 50% off of, of the pace of Farrakh. And, and yeah, and I don't know if there's anything untoward about those numbers, right? Because right. it's about half of what Duke and Farrakh are doing, right? But nevertheless, it's, it's interesting that there's discussion or, yeah. or inquiry. Yeah, so he's looking for the third most, so I can tell you from the rest of these documents, uh, so there's monthly reports going back, you know, from 2003, so it's all like this. So he's looking for the highest producers each month and highlighting them. And uh, during the time that Farrick's working there, there's an awful lot of Farrick highlights, and asterisks, and underlines. <laughs> right. And then, the, uh, you know, the negative is interesting. Uh, we haven't really touched on this very much. But obviously, there's sort of the, the reality that some set of samples are going to be negative. And um, yeah, it's street drugs. They're selling like fake shit. Like a lot of these people are drug addicts, right? right. So they're selling. And, and also, there's misid- misidentification. I mean, yep. um, True. I, I think I think um, you know it was an interesting question in my case uh, where the substance was actually uh, a, a, a ground uh, nut. Um, that whether it's actually whether it actually was being misrepresented uh, 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 or not uh, as, as, as street drugs. But certainly, um, uh, if, if police find a Ziploc bag uh, with powder in, in your glove compartment, they're going to seize it. Um, and, and you can't do my defense of saying that's the backup powder for my mini Zen garden, um, which is a true story. I have a little Zen garden with my little baggie of reserve uh, sand. <laughs> uh, but it looks like powder, uh, and um, and there, no no one's going to believe that it's 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 innocent. So there there is misidentification as a possibility, and so there's the conundrum of what happens when a negative sample enters the lab. We know Annie Dukin has admitted to turning negatives into positives, um, but we don't know. Uh, but we know from the OIG report that there were a bunch of people who that happened to, and Annie Dukin wasn't involved in all of those cases or even a majority of those cases. And, so we also know, and we also know from the OIG report that the average chemist tested 96% positive for their testing. Which seems high. <laughs> uh, like it's, like an election, it's like a Stalin election or a, you know. But, uh, uh, or Saddam Hussein. But so the Saddam question, Hussein, yeah. Right, but the question is, uh, what is going on when you have these negative results? Uh, and why, if you're fudging some results to be positive, why not fudge all of them? Uh, there's never been an, a satisfactory explanation for what actually was going on in, in, in these labs. Well, there's, um, this, there's this whole other issue when they found negative results, like somehow uh, the drug certificates never made their way into defendants' hands. So I don't know if you follow the story over the summer, but Rachel Rollins uh, conducted a review of, uh, you know, uh, the Suffolk County cases, and they found 64 defendants, something like 80 convictions across those defendants where the people had pleaded guilty early 
the Hinton lab tested it, uh, came back negative, and they were just never told. And now uh, Middlesex has found uh, over a dozen. I think Norfolk has found over a dozen. So I think it's up to uh, over 100 convictions now where people, uh, the entire time, they were factually innocent and they were just never told and were allowed to continue serving their sentences. Right. Why? So we have, we why? have people who. Like, why would you want to do that as a human being? Why? It's, it, it just, it appears to me to be an error that no one thought about. There was no protocol or procedure in place to immediately notify either the police or the DA's office when a sample tested negative. So they print out the cert, staple it to a bag, and wait for the police to pick it up. But, you know, if the person pled guilty, there's never going to be a request from the DA's office to pick up that drug cert. Right. And there's, there's an argument I've heard that your Brady rights don't really attach until a, a, a trial. And so you can be induced to take a guilty plea um, uh, in the face of what I think is, should be a Brady violation. Um, and that happens all the time. And, 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 uh, uh, but so you have, you have a group of people who were never notified and whose rights were uh, harmed. You have a group of people who were falsely told that their sample was narcotics when it wasn't. Uh, and some of them, like my client, went to a, in front of a jury and lost. Uh, and then uh, you have a, a, a series of people who were never told uh, about the errors that were uh, involved uh, in the testing of their samples. Uh, and so you sort of wonder, uh, you yeah, know. I want to add one thing. You also have the Supreme Court of the United States who was told that this lab was following Swig drug right. when they knew it was completely untrue. Right. Yeah, and they knew it the whole time. So, so you want, do you want me to read the Farrakh footnote or do you want to make one more point? Ilias, I'm sorry. I just, yeah, no, no. I just, it, it, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is every time this issue enters the, 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 I'll just say the public consciousness through the media. It's reported sort of in a, in a, in a, a two-dimensional way, right? So, oh, you know, maybe it was that you were affected by Annie Dukin and she had a high volume and she was rushing and making mistakes. Or, oh, maybe there was some people who, there, there were tests, um, uh, there were samples were tested multiple times and, and, you know, they had some exculpatory evidence in there. Uh, and then Rachel Rollins did what she did, and that got some uh, uh, media attention. But no one has ever looked at this as a holistic, other than, uh, uh, Chris, I'll say the defense bar has and is trying to and is screaming as loud as they can for other people to listen. But why has the public never looked at this and said this is the equivalent of a uh, you know, three-mile island, <laughs> and we need to shut everything down and yep. then have a lengthy, open public investigation of what happened. You know, we spent more time figuring out uh, the space shuttle's O-rings uh, than we spent trying to figure out what happened here. Um, and, well, and Like Jim McKenna has been saying that for years, and everyone was like, well, that's not going to get traction with judges and the court. No one's going to want to throw out, like, all of the cases from a lab. But he's been steadily pushing forward and he's now successfully advanced this legal argument that apparently in Massachusetts it's now um, a cognizable um, you know ar 
argument and legal theory to say if the government failed to investigate something of this magnitude, it requires dismissal of cases. Mm. So, um, you know, got to go (laughs) from and I'm talking from back in the 60s, because I I know like they what's your name? Uh, uh, Not Sharon Salem. Uh, Yeah, Sharon Salem. 1987, right? In, in, in 1987, when she came in, she was showed how to make drug lab standards by using pinched material from uh, submitted evidence. Right. And that was common practice from the day the lab opened, according to Jim Hanchett, who, you know, we'll play that interview later. But according to him, they had been doing that forever. That was their standard practice. So everything's got to go. That's, I mean, there, there's no way that any of this, and, and that's also the penalty that they should pay for this massive waste of public funds. And this is another point that I've been wanting to make. We, we talk about defunding the police and people get scared out of their mind because that's what the police do. They scare you into thinking that you have to fund them like the way they say they need to be funded in order for you to have safe streets. But where a lot of this funding goes is to cover ups and lies and to lie to our faces, to take our money and to lie to our faces. This is what Chris made the point last time where we're approaching $100 million to cover up what they knew was true. That is a disgrace that needs to be addressed by the media or whoever the public needs to care. That's the thing. They all like to answer your question, Ilias. I think it's all because they think drug, like everyone involved in this case is a piece of crap and they deserve what they got. It costs about $30,000 per year to get accredited. So, you know, in comparison, you know, I know they thought that was a lot, the lab administrators at the time, but in comparison to $100 million, it's not that much. No. Well, I I hope we'll be able to cover... um, uh, in depth at a later point, the the money angle of this, because, you know, the war on drugs, like all wars, um, is very profitable to certain people uh, and very costly to others. Uh, and there's no transparency in, in, in how those uh, uh, di- uh, distributions of wealth uh, are, 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 are figured out. Um, but I think there's uh, momentum now, given the results of the recent election, for people to take a fresh look at what are we doing with our drug policies. Um, we know the drug war has its roots in a, uh, a, a, a racist uh, a, uh, and anti-civil liberties um, mindset. Uh, and, and, and we know that prosecutors' offices and police departments actually make a lot of money from uh, uh, the war on drugs. Uh, because they're essentially able to keep uh, what they what they get. So if you're pulled over in a car and you have five thousand dollars in cash, it doesn't matter whether you're a bartender and that's your tips, uh, or you made five thousand dollars from selling drugs. Uh, it's 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 tainted money, and you would have to uh, stick your neck out to try to make a claim for it. So that and, and Massachusetts, we know rates uh, near the bottom in terms of its civil forfeiture laws, and and um, so th- there's a tremendous amount of money that's funneling through the system that nobody can do anything about or wants to do anything about, 
Um, but I think all of those go together. So we need to understand why we, why we paint ourselves into a corner that becomes very expensive and why maybe streamlining and improving the system is going to cost some people some money, but we should be okay with that. Um, yeah, and- I go off on a slight tangent for a second, but it's analogous. So um, I don't know if you guys have seen the situation that's happening in MCI Norfolk where there's a COVID outbreak. And yes. the, so sort of the idea from the establishment, from the Baker administration is we can't let these dangerous criminals out. Meanwhile, they're creating a reservoir where uh, a highly deadly virus is spreading. So it just, you know, if a reasonable person looks at it, they have to say there are other options than what you're doing right now, right? And let's discuss them. I know people are uncomfortable with maybe releasing them, uh, you know, to this, like, we'll figure something out in the middle, but it's not, these people don't matter. They stay in there and die, right? Right. And they deserve it. And like, it's like holding drugs is not a death sentence or like a sentence for you to get horribly sick. Like if they're not, so you're referring to the 160 inmates that have it at Norfolk. It's, I think it's approaching 180 now. And so like if, there, I mean, who knows what there is? Is there an evaluation being done of like their suitability to leave? I don't think any of this is being done because of the reverence we give to prosecutors and what, oh, go ahead. I don't want to take too much time on this off topic thing, but, uh, you know, what they're doing in that particular prison, when someone tests positive, they send them to a quarantine area for 10 days and then return them to the general population without retesting them. Right. <laughs> so oh that, that doesn't help anyone. Like I, I was writing to NACDL and the ACLU about what we should be doing about this. I'm, this is, call me crazy, but I was thinking about reaching out to the union that represents the corrections officers because they got to be scared to death as well because it just doesn't make any sense. Yep. Well, I don't know who picked yeah. 10 years, I mean, 10 days, but that sounds like the same person who picked 10 years. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, and, that's someone's job. So, and, so and I would just say, just to finish this tangent, um, and I'm sure this is going on in every state, but in Texas, uh, there's, there, there's a, a large number of, of, of uh, people who are being held pre-trial who are, I think it's 80% in one facility who are, who are dying, who are being held pretrial. So techni- as a technical matter, not to be um, hyper-technical about something like the Constitution, but they're innocent until proven guilty. And they're, they're dying because we, uh, they probably couldn't make bail, right? So there's, there's one, uh, another issue. Uh, and, and they're being held under the same circumstances that convicted people are. And, and honestly, guys, even though this is a tangent off, you know, kind of off subject, but it all is about the same thing to me in my mind. It's about the reverence that our society pays in general to law enforcement um, and just giving them carte blanche to like whoever just accuse people of committing crimes. And once the accusation is made, they are guilty in our society's eyes. We cannot deny that. It's no longer guilty and uh, innocent to proven guilty. It's guilty when accused and that's final. 
If the police arrest you and even ask you questions about a crime, you are guilty in people's eyes. We are very off the reservation when it comes to law enforcement, where we are so far away from how the country was founded. And, you know, why that is, you know, why that's happening is, you know, could be a debate, but there's no question that what, like, they are not even questioning, you know, holding people, like, as Ilya said, who haven't even been convicted in jail. We allow that. And we allow people to be in jail for, you know, what, what I think society in general thinks are very minor crimes. And that's what we're talking about here. Like the, the just total disregard for the fact that people, like Chris was saying before, they knew people were factually innocent and they just didn't tell them. They just didn't even reach out. It doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter. And that's really very scary. Sorry, that's that's my tangent, but but um, okay. <laughs> back to the drug lab stuff. Back to the drug lab. So the the Amherst. Um, so so we were saying that Sonia is not mentioned outside of a footnote in the OIG report. Here is what it says on page ten, footnote fourteen. On July first, two thousand twelve, all forensic drug labs formerly under DPH were consolidated under the Mass State Police, including the drug lab located in Amherst. And then, and then it says in January twenty thirteen, Amherst lab chemist Sonia Farak was charged with removing drugs from, because uh, it's a two-page footnote, hold on one second, from the Amherst lab purportedly for her personal use and was charged with four counts of theft of a controlled substance from an authorized dispensary, four counts of tampering with evidence, and two counts of possession of cocaine. In January, on January 6, 2014, Farak pled pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two and a half years in the House of Corrections with 18 months to serve and the balance suspended for five years. So she served 18 months and, and that's it. In the entire report. So you've got to be wondering if their own consultant told them, A, her numbers in general are an issue, B, her cocaine numbers are certainly an issue. And C, uh, when she transferred to the Amherst lab, even by their standards, uh, they realized there was a problem and that she was working too quickly. Uh, One might infer that maybe something was wrong, but still, there's no mention of her in the report. Uh, As Ilias pointed out, they cherry-picked the years and cherry-picked the data I assume, in order to make it look like Dukin was the sole bad actor. And sort of that's the story that was sold not only to the defense bar, to, but to DAs. I've talked with ADAs who are pissed about this because for years they were sitting there saying there's no story to see here because the OIG investigated it and we trust them. And now they're saying, what? Someone from the FBI told you that there was an issue you didn't tell us? Yeah. Yeah, and you know, Jamie, um, that footnote, which I've read a hundred times, but maybe it was just the the mellifluous uh, uh, vocal tones that that you read. Oh, I, I I was told that I sound like I'm from Jersey, so 
don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> You're on mute. Oh, yeah. Sorry, what, what was interesting about that footnote is what it says and what it doesn't say. Um, and, and how in 2014, when that footnote came out, the world was still laboring under, I think, a misimpression of what Farrakh was up to. And what I mean by this is, look what the footnote says she was accused of doing. She was accused of removing drugs from Amherst purportedly for her personal use. Right. So not that she's addicted. Lawyerly way of putting it. Not that she was... Purportedly. Absolutely charged with her personal use, not purportedly, but was she found was, in her car. She but wasn't she charged with removing it. I mean, maybe she was, incidentally, right? Right. She was admitting to using it in 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 house. So what's interesting is that whoever wrote that, either consciously or unconsciously, is pointing an arrow in the direction I've always wondered, which is why are why do we assume? that you have uh, two labs that, that receive massive amounts. If you measured it in terms of street value, uh, these labs have massive amounts of, of, of product moving through them. And we know that there have been uh, multiple, uh, I, I'm not even sure I have the accurate count, but I count Springfield, Braintree, and, and Framingham uh, of, of evidence rooms that somehow evidence is able to come and go as it pleases. Uh, why, why do we not believe that there was diversion of drug product out of the lab for various reasons, including financial reasons? Why, why is that assumption a sound assumption? And whoever wrote that footnote is basically telling us um, that that's something that was on someone's mind. And no one has really, uh, to my knowledge, actually investigated this. No one, has anyone looked at do drugs in these labs uh, exit in any other way other than a sealed uh, 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 bag. Yeah, that's uh, very poignant. Um, I, I think the only real investigation was into Kevin Burnham, but very sadly, he committed suicide before he was about to plead guilty, so we never got the full story. And but according to the... That uh, there was no temporal overlap, meaning... Um, Detective Burnham seems, according to the, what I've read, seems to have discovered uh, late in his career that he could monetize um, seized samples, uh, coincidentally right after Sonia Frock was arrested. So that like maybe maybe the news of, of her arrest uh, was the light bulb uh, in his mind, or maybe he was doing it before, and maybe she was involved. We'll never know. The only Same thing I've seen is him stealing actual money from evidence. That's that's yeah, the only. Right. Thing. That's, that's right. what he's been accused well, of. Well, money, money from but evidence. The evidence officer who brought the drugs to the lab, so that raises a question, but no one ever got to the bottom of it because the attorney general's office did not want that to be an issue, I take it. Right. And, well, right. They, they've told, they told me in an official FOIA response that they had no interviews about their investigation with Burnham. They, didn't, they interviewed no one. Right. And we, we know of a similar circumstance going on in Braintree uh, with a similar outcome uh, that is the uh, ended in a tragic uh, uh, suicide. Um, I believe there's issues with uh, Framingham uh, uh, and um, 
so the question I think is, were drugs actually leaving? Right. And are they still, who knows what's going on now? You know, I mean, it's at the state police, but there's no visibility there. And the state police to me is huge, a huge part of this that's being ignored. Uh, Cause it, as we'll go over when we do the Hanshit interview, Hanshit flat out says that they were doing the same exact process when it came to creating reference standards. And he never gives a time frame. He, but he tells uh, Codwell and the investigators to make no quote, make no mistake. They were doing it at the state police, and they had no interest whatsoever when he brought that up of following of following up with any question. They just brought him back to what they were talking about. All right, so we've covered a lot of ground um, here. Let's take a pause. Do you guys? You have people who are addicted and we're criminalizing it, putting them on some revolving door. And the other thing when you get arrested for drugs is the, uh, or any crime, is the extreme disruption of your ability to ever earn money again um, and the court costs and all that. So you're basically, if you weren't poor before, you're, you're going to exit poor. Uh, and, and then she said that we're criminalizing the behavior. It's the behavior that's criminal. Yeah. And, and it's a fascinating statement because we know, I mean, if I went to Washington DC to the, to the, the halls of the, you know, Congress and all the staff buildings, I mean, how many people in there are using drugs? I'm sure that there's a large number, a large number. Um, and, and, you know, the 80s was the, is thought of as the decade of, of you know, high rolling cocaine. Um, but we didn't criminalize that, right? We didn't cr criminalize the, the, the um, Studio 54. No, but we, we, we criminalized the, the crack and the poor people. Yeah. And so I think, I think, well, I think the public is ripe for a revisiting of this. But it, I agree. They, they need to see sort of not the cost benefit as solely, but also the the giant hypocrisy of this system, the giant hypocrisy. I mean, the, the fact that narcotics officers in plain clothes walk around the street as if they're drug dealers, you know, driving the same vehicles that drug dealers drive. Um, you, you know, it's very fascinating. And what happens to that money when they make the drug deal? Right in their pocket. No, no one, no <laughs> one looks it up. And, and so, so right now we're having the, the COVID-19, right? And there's a movement to not wear masks because people just think it's a total, I mean, it's absurd, but people think it's a violation of their rights. They don't say the same thing when they're forced to wear shirts or shoes into a convenience store, but they say it when they wear a mask during the pandemic, fine. Uh, when they're being asked, there's governors in the, in the country who won't allow that. That's going on. People get outraged by that. But this case gets zero traction when, when this is an actual provable government conspiracy to lock people in prison. That is, to me, endlessly mind-boggling. That, that we don't see that hypocrisy. We don't see that connection. It's crazy to me. One of the, one of the things that in my career has gotten me the most upset, and we haven't talked about this, is pre-trial detention and conditions of release that are designed to make the person fail so that they get locked up long enough that they have to take a plea. You know, it's crazy. So like it, 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 
I worked in district courts a lot before joining the drug lab unit. And I don't know if Elias had any experience there, but they put these conditions on you when there's, there's just some allegation that you did something. Yeah. At arraignment. And, you know, in the old days, you get, all right, well, $25 bail. We'll see you in like two months. But now it's like you get a GPS bracelet. Uh, you have to go on a breathalyzer. And you have to report to the probation office every, like three times a week and like whatever the fuck, like, you know, stuff that people who are barely hanging on uh, in society cannot possibly meet. And then finally they fuck up at some point, mostly because the GPS bracelet stopped working and there was some problem with Elmo, which is the name of the system that handles it. And then they- Elmo? Yeah, I don't know what the acronym is for, but um, it's like electronic monitoring something. Okay. Uh, so they get some issue and then they're stuck in jail and they're like, I have to plead out so I can get back to work. My boss is saying like, you don't have a job anymore. You know, it, it, like that to me, the, this whole experience, you know, I started as a lawyer in 2011. It's 2020. And that is one of the things that stands out to me as, as one of the worst parts of our criminal justice system, that people are just railroaded through pretrial conditions into pleading guilty because it's easier for the court to process and they don't really, you know. Well, we, I think that's a great point. That actually, I know very little about the criminal system, but that actually bothers me too. Uh, my understanding is that the uh, 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 the um, when, when you're on probation, either pre-trial or uh, uh, post-conviction, the the standard that the government has to prove your misconduct is preponderance of the evidence. So right? it's for it's a probation not, violation. For a probation violation, um, and so right away uh, there there's a uh, there, that's that's concerning because the the, the very liberty that that is protected beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, is, is suddenly re relaxed. Two, if you read these conditions, I mean, your, your point is that they're set up, you're set up to fail. To me, they sound like modern slavery. I mean, they say things like, you can't drink. Oh, really? I can't drink? Every judge in this state, when you go to court, has red cheeks. And you're telling me that, but, but there's one group of people that can't drink? You know, that, that's insane. You can't stay out after uh, 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 six o'clock or eight o'clock. Oh, right. really? What are we in the South? You know, so so all of a sudden this reads like this is sort of like a, a, a like an, an urban Jim Crow. It, yep. it, it's crazy to me, and and I understand the arguments. You know, I understand taking away the computer of someone who got caught with child porn, but I also know that taking away a computer of somebody destines them to a, a life of no options. Right. Uh, yeah. and, I mean, and Out of all the time that I worked in district court, there was one judge once who was like, wait a second, this is pre-trial. Uh, none of this makes sense. He's not guilty of anything. I'm just going to relax the conditions. That yeah. happened one time, the entire time I practiced in court. Right. And I went through this, I mean, you know, with, with juveniles, they have, I, I, I think they've changed it, but it used to be called a, a chins. Uh, chins hearing, yeah. Yeah. So what, they do the same thing, which is they, 
you're innocent until proven guilty, but now let's have a parallel proceeding where you're guilty and you're going to like reform your ways. Yeah. You really are guilty. So we get to tell you what to do. And reform your ways means like you got to be on to school on time. Oh, that's great. I've, I've been to school. I was the most late person in my school's history. (laughs) I was so chronically late that I actually found a loophole in the school's tracking system so that if you say you forgot to check in, the slap on the wrist you get is more, is more minor than if you're chronically late. So I just chronically didn't check in. And I would show up around noon and say, hey, I forgot to check in. And they'd say, oh, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I figured that, that, that system, I mean, I would have been in trouble if I had that as a, as a condition. So I think, I think that has to be, uh, that system along with bail has to be, um, let's just say, revamped. 100%. We need to stop being so terrified of, you know, what we consider criminal behavior. I mean, there's criminal behavior and then there's this nonsense that we're talking about. If you want to do treatment or, you know, rehabilitation, I'm all for that, right? I don't believe the AA uh, or 12-step programs work, in my opinion. Um, I don't necessarily believe that the anger management stuff works. Um, But I think there's a lot you could do. Uh, uh, you know, if you let scientists uh, enter the conversation, there's a lot right. you could, probably could do. Argument invariably is, um, you know, oh, I don't want my school child school bus driver to be high on cocaine. Well, you don't want him to be drunk either, and exactly. we have to deal with that. Exactly. Uh, uh, and 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 by the way, I think what we pay school bus drivers, they're not really going to be high on cocaine all the time, um, <laughs> unless they have a second income. Um, but, uh, but so the, it, it's all this sort of scare thinking, um, yep. and, and the government is, is very good at, at, at leading with scare thinking. I mean, I, I remember, I don't know if you guys are, how old you guys are, but about 10 years ago, there was a bill, uh, um, a referendum to allow liquor stores to, I mean, grocery stores to sell alcohol. Currently, I think you're limited to three stores in any, in any chain. Um, which by the way, that makes no sense. Right. No, I also remember that cause I'm from Florida and like they can sell liquor at the gas station. And I was like, what, what do they do here? I have to go to a package. What is a package store? Right. And so the, but the argument the t- the TV commercials were like police officers with the lights behind them <laughs> saying that if you vote yes on this bill, you're going to cause people to die. Yep. Because of drunk driving. And I'm like, hold on, can I ask a question? Wouldn't you on balance reduce the number of of, um, vehicle miles traveled? If I could go to the grocery store and get my food and my alcohol and then get home, aren't I less likely to drink and drive than if I go and I have to go to the grocery store, then I got to go to the liquor store. And now I'm so like stressed out from having to do two stores that maybe I'm going to sit in the parking lot and maybe throw back a drink. You know, aren't you just go to the liquor store first, drink, and then go to the grocery store? Right. So it just seems to me that 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 there's no actual data or logic or common sense. It's all scare tactics, and that worked. That right, that got shot down. And I, I I was, we had a my firm um, uh, holiday party, and I'm I'm sitting with this partner that I couldn't stand, and his wife. And I said, I don't know who would vote it against that. Who are these people? And was that at the party? Huh. 
Do you guys have your? Do you guys have the holiday party? The barbecue. Do at the barbecue. No, this was my old firm, and we had it at. Um, but God. by the way, keep doing that once COVID is over because that's awesome. Yes. Oh my God, we can't do it now because we would destroy the city. <laughs> <laughs> the, by the, the way, the profession would be right. Our building, one of the security officers tested positive. I don't know if you saw that, but Chauncey and Dave uh, wrote me over the weekend, 50 Congress Street. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't I've been out of, I, I've literally stepped out of the building now. Yeah. Well, my kids' school, we had a case um, and typically just don't do it. I don't, yeah, just I, don't do it. So what are your issues with the OIG investigation? So, Go ahead. Well, I, I'm a firm believer that, that it's good to have uh, uh, independent um, inspector general offices. Uh, I, I think that's, that's one of the, the rare um, uh, good things that we see in, in, in various governments uh, at, at various levels. Um, but if that's what we're going to do, then I think we need two things. We either need, well, and I think both, so it's, it's an and, but one, we need to have some trust or some assurances that those investigations will be um, uh, unbiased and unfiltered. Uh, and if the investigation leads you in a direction that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, that's too bad. That's what the whole point of the system is. If the system is just simply to circle the wagons and, and cover everyone's backside, we don't need uh, inspector generals with their independent budgets. We don't need that. Um, the other thing is that once you do an investigation, I think it's incumbent on the, the, the product, the work product uh, 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 of the investigation and the things that were reviewed in the course of it to be made public. Uh, that's, that's how the system works. That's transparency. Um, and I, what concerns me in this case is that there's a feel, and I'm not saying it's, this is what happened, but there's a feel that the OIG investigation was sort of a catch and kill. That's a, a, a popular phrase now where uh, you, 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 uh, uh, you, you pay off essentially somebody uh, to kill a story um, by giving, them, giving a media entity the rights that ha has no intent of ever publishing. Um, if the OIG is going to hide behind its secrecy, which it's entitled to, it's entitled while it's doing that investigation to not have people, you know, peering over their shoulder. But once that investigation's over, everything, in my opinion, needs to be um, uh, publicly available. And, right. And there's so no as, peer review. If I can interject, so as a defense attorney, I've been thinking about this a lot. So the enabling statute is in the general laws, chapter 12A. And, um, you know, uh, part of it says essentially that our investigations are private and confidential. And as a defense attorney, again, that makes sense to me in the same way that uh, it makes sense that um, sometimes grand jury materials are not released because there's not probable cause to believe someone was committing a crime. So you don't want standing people in the public. Anyone can go accuse them of something. There's an investigation and then their career is over. It makes sense to have some mechanism in place to keep materials private. So then the question is, uh, you know, how do we get a better person in office who's not going to be inclined to hide things for political purposes? So then if you uh, go to uh, General Laws Chapter 12A, um, 
Section 3, it talks about how in Massachusetts, the inspector general is appointed and it's a political process that involves the attorney general uh, among other persons. So uh, one could, well, as it has been shown through this whole experience, um, the attorney general's office turns out not to be the, the greatest uh, uh, the attorney general is not the greatest person to be deciding this if their office is conflicted out uh, based upon stuff that even their own prosecutors have been doing. So uh, maybe it should be a, an elected position. I, I don't know what the correct answer is, but I, I think the direction we should be moving to is is trying to appoint our inspector general in a different manner to make it more transparent to the public, make the people have a vote so it's not behind closed doors. And a former prosecutor who worked for Norfolk and the attorney general's office. Right. It's a shame because the OIG you know, by by all accounts, did a, um, a massive investigation uh, and, and found everything. I mean, you, I did, lots of as far as we know, they, they found lots and lots of stuff. And and I just think that if if and I don't know what was spent um, directly on the uh, on the lab investigation by the OIG, but I'm going to hazard a guess that it's in the millions of dollars uh, and. For that millions of dollars, I don't think in 2020 we should still be finding new emails right. no. uh, or finding new documents. That that's then why have an OIG, right? If, you know, if the government wants to hire uh, uh, Chris, me, and you, they could pay us the millions, uh, and we'll find all the emails and then we'll just uh, uh, put them out on uh, you know um, uh, on the internet for everyone to see. I mean, there you go. Um, hey, you know, I talked with Vince Demore, who worked for Suffolk County through this entire thing, and he was like, "Just put everything out so everyone can access it." I don't understand why that's not starting position. I've talked to the DPH about that, and they, uh, want, I was told that one supervisor is digging their heels in. the uh, The person that I talked to at DPH said that they he wants to give me everything that they have, which is about seventy thousand documents that they have left over, according to him. I mean, the number changes from day to day, but regardless, he wants to give me everything and there's a supervisor there that will not allow it. Right. And, and, and Yeah. And given that every time there's been a trove of documents that somebody has fought to keep hidden, and then when that trove gets turned over, there's something earth shattering in it. Yeah. Right. And but thinking, every year, you know, every year, Brian's experience. Year. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, what, um, uh, uh, Chris, you've gone through. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the CD of the uh, exhibits used um, by, um, by that uh, uh, two-man team. I'm, I'm blanking on their names, the, the, the retired judge and... Um, Bellis. Yeah, you know, their exhibits. Uh, you know, every time we, somebody gets their hands on something, there's something really good there. And so you start to realize that this isn't random that people are fighting to hold, withhold documents. It's not, no, no one fights to withhold stuff that is uh, of no consequence. Right. And uh, lies and FOIA responses and, yeah. and 
subjects themselves to potential litigation um, because they want to, they don't care that like the litigation is part of it. Then they get to fight the litigation and then it will drag out for years. And then they still, even if they lose everything and are forced by a judge to say it, they still won't release it. They'll just say, you know what? F you, I'm not releasing this because I'm the attorney general and I don't have to follow the laws. And, and you know, we're about to hit the 10 year anniversary of the, you know, first disclosure, the public disclosure that there was anything wrong. Yep. Uh, which was, I think, around August or September of 2012. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and now this has become, this is moving into like history as opposed to current events. And I think it's very hard in this country to get anyone's attention um, when, when you start talking about history. So the part of the strategy has already paid off, which is delay this thing until nobody cares anymore. Right. Right. And then they will, and then I'm sure at the 10 year anniversary or something, they'll release everything, you know, down the line, they're, they're just going to dump it all and just say, you know, oh, this happened a long time ago, but it's not like that anymore. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's sad, but this is great stuff, Chris. Um, it's, it, it refutes in a, a million dollar lengthy investigation by the government. It exposes that the media, I mean, to me, it exposes a lot about how the media and the government are related to each other and how the media almost, it, not all of it, but some of it sees itself as just reporting what the government tells it rather than actually investigating what the government is telling it and to see if there's anything else. Because no outlets have reported this yet. And, and I doubt that this will be reported well, moving forward. I know there are reporters at the Boston Globe who have been interested in this, so they've been doing some good work pushing out articles, uh, but it certainly doesn't have the widespread attention that it deserves. It's not front page news or whatever front page news would be now. Like, it's not, you know, this spotlight investigation into the, the priests, uh, you know, that, that was based on that movie. It's not getting that kind of push from the Globe. It's, it's one reporter or one, you know, person kind of push these stories out there and it gets buried in the shuffle of the daily news uh, cycle. Well, right. Well, that, that you're referring to, um, uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name the spotlight was the movie, right? Yeah. Uh, where, where, the, uh, it was, that was the globe versus the globe, right? That was, yeah. uh, one arm, uh, trying to thwart the other arm. Uh, and I think that that um, is the reality, unfortunately, of what goes on. Uh, and I was surprised, uh, Chris, that you found that, that uh, I think it was in the WBUR piece, uh, that there was a mention of the allegation of, of the uh, um, pinching or redirection of, of and then nothing. <laughs> these samples and then nothing. And I'm thinking, wow, I, you know, if I'm a reporter and I'm on this story, I just got handed, a, a, you know, a potential second story. Uh, and, and, and that could be a, a, a bombshell of a story. Uh, and, and, um, and, and, and then that just disappears. And so it's there, just like some of these OIG footnotes. Right. You know? um, and, and I think once it's out there, I think people feel like they've, maybe they've done enough uh, and they don't need to uh, keep unraveling things further. But. And, and I think there's a fatigue factor too, because I, I was told that at least one news organization says there's nothing new. There's nothing new, even though there is stuff new that refutes, even the, that refutes what the OIG said. And even though 
that um, no outlet ever, national, local ever, has said the OIG has misrepresented the truth. Whatever you want to say. I say lie. You can say misrepresent the truth, whatever. But their conclusion is flat out wrong. I mean, like, all, all you have to do is look at page 63 of the report and compare it to their own consultant's email. The numbers are different. Right. right. They withheld. Yeah, I, I would say, and, and I don't know the um, what the standard here is of, of re-review, but I, um, you know, from time to time, lawyers are forced to um, correct the record. Uh, and I don't, I've had to do that, Chris, maybe you've had to do that too, where you make a representation and then circumstances change or whatever. Um, you have, don't you have a continuing duty when you say something to sort of um, make it match um, the truth? And it seems to me that if the OIG learns, which I believe they have, that their main conclusion was wrong, don't you have to sort of go back and say, well, it was right for the time and here's what we didn't know, or we're going to reopen this and try to, and, 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 and ask the question, why did we get the conclusion wrong? So like under the rules, we lied to, or did we, did we make a mistake in our investigation? Cause I think both are concerning and that's the OIG's business, right? It's like if, uh, if, if, if you can't hit a curveball in baseball, uh, don't you need to a figure out why you can't hit a curveball uh, and, and maybe decide if you're not the right person uh, for the job, if, if, you, if that can't be improved. So why, does the, why would the conclusion uh, being wrong not either suggest somebody lied to the OIG or the OIG's process was not what it thought it was? So like A, if you're under the rules of professional conduct that governs lawyers in Massachusetts, if you're making representations that are being used in court and you know that they're being used in court uh, and you know they're false, you have to correct them. Uh, it may be a little bit more complicated because it's DAs who are actually making the representations instead of people in the IG's office. So, you know, it gets a little money there. But I would think at least ethically they have a responsibility um, to make corrections. And like I said earlier, I've been trying to float this idea to their office for the past at least year and a half that if they knew more about Farrick, if they knew about the stuff that the AGO was withholding, they would have looked into her more deeply. That's totally reasonable. And they, they've just said no. Mm. Right. They're just right. not interested. Which is odd. I mean, I have uh, a, a, a couple of cases where I get, uh, where I have new information that changes sort of the, this the, the 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 sense of whether there was a proper adjudication and i've i've uh, both filed and and defended against motions for um uh you know a new trial or reconsideration based on newly discovered evidence and that seems to be a, a, an important part of the process to say did we get this right based on newly discovered evidence and what i've never heard uh, in that process is who, ca who cares? Why do you want to reopen this thing? Question, is, is it new evidence? Did it, would it change the result? That's, those are legitimate questions, but I've never heard a judge say, well, who cares? You're talking about something that happened last year, two years ago. Who cares? One of the other things that they've been saying was, well, by the time this information about Farrick came out, eventually, because of Luke Bryan, 
we already finished our investigation. So that, that doesn't really answer the question, why don't you reopen the investigation? Right. And then we know, and even that's BS, because we know that they were sending emails about Farrah, you know, a month after she was arrested, you know, like, or, or a couple months after she was arrested, like you just read today. So they, everything they say is a lie when it comes to this. So they need to be removed. Like they need, they being the OIG, the attorney generals, all of Massachusetts, you know, law enforcement needs to be removed from this and it needs to be investigated either federally with no one from Massachusetts, no one with Massachusetts ties or, you know, by an independent contractor. And that's the only way we'll even get any semblance of truth as to what happened all up and down the board, why they continue to lie about it, why they lied about it to begin with. And, you know, why all of this information was withheld, that needs to be answered. Well, at minimum, there definitely needs to be an answer as to why the numbers in the consultant's email were not referenced in the report. That is that's huge, unexplainable. And there, there needs to be some inquiry uh, as to what actually happened. And, and I mean, they obviously wanted to make it about Annie Dukin. They, they said that their investigation, even though it was the same time frame as Annie Dukin worked at the lab pretty much, it wasn't just about Annie Dukin, but they, that is a false, a blatant falsehood, just like they said that Annie Dukin wasn't rigging evidence to help uh, prosecutors win cases. That's another blatant falsehood. Right. And, well, and, and then also, I think there needs to be some understanding of why a 10-year time period in one of two labs that were run through the same organization were looked at and why the cross-pollinization uh, between the two labs was not looked at too. I mean, it seems that every arbitrary decision seems to have favored encapsulation um, and limitation uh, as opposed to uh, what I, uh, as somebody who does investigation as part of my job, the opposite of what you do, right? You enlarge, you broaden, uh, you know, you, you question uh, you kick the tires um, just habitually uh, to figure out that you make sure you're not being led astray because that's the worst thing that can happen to investigators that you're being uh, sold a bill of goods and you fall for it. So you sort of have to be skeptical um, and use uh, a common sense to guide your decision making. And that seems to not have worked effectively here. It's, uh, there's, you know, this isn't the end. There's, there's more to come and we will, even though this is the end of this episode where we will be, uh, recording another one possibly today about, uh, the Jim Hanschett interview, which is even more, <laughs> which is even more things, uh, that haven't been, um, that haven't been disclosed. So, uh, thank you for listening to this one and we will see you next time on the rig podcast.